Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. My next very special guest on Open House has finally told the full agonising story of his family's life that I must confess, reading through it all, I found it at times deeply disturbing, even frankly quite sickening. Over and over again, I've been thinking, what would this be like if this was happening to me? That it could happen at all, that it could happen in Australia, and that so many and so much were stacked against them in the wake of the death of their tiny baby. Azaria Chamberlain was taken and killed by a dingo from her family's tent at Uluru at the time Ayers Rock on August 17, 1980. She was nine weeks old. Her parents, Lindy and Michael, faced the cynicism, the cruelty, the abuse of everyday citizens, the media, the police, the justice system. One historian called them the most hated people in Australia's 200-year history. Lindy was eventually jailed for life with hard labour for the murder of Azaria. She was later released. Michael was found to be an accessory to murder. There have been four inquests, and finally in June this year, the Northern Territory coroner ruled that Azaria was taken by a dingo, and the coroner offered her own very emotional apology to the Chamberlains in a highly charged hearing. And now Michael Chamberlain, Azaria's father, has for the first time written his powerfully moving account of this quite shameful episode in Australia's history in his book, Heart of Stone. It's been quite a journey for a church pastor, and from my reading of his book, it seems so many of their problems and the shocking abuse and injustice of it all stem from the perception, as Michael describes it in the book, that he was a religious nutcase and a goof. Michael Chamberlain, welcome to Open House. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very grateful for your time, Michael. Michael, why did you feel it necessary to write your account, and why now, 32 years on? Well, that's a very good question. I guess from the third inquest in 1995, I had decided, after something had snapped inside me, and a fairly uh, high-up judicial officer said to me, you'll never get justice in the Northern Territory, don't start having another crack at it. And I said, this is going to be a long haul to myself, and I started to skill myself. I guess after getting a few tools to assess, to research, to communicate, I started on a book in 2008 at a time when still nothing was happening into uh, being told what happened to uh, our daughter at Ayers Rock. Uh, there was no formal indication, no empathy, you know, go away, Sonny, you don't need to know anyway, and what we have is still a deep, dark secret that you aren't going to be entitled to have the answer to. Has it been a good thing for you to write it? It's been an excellent thing for me to write, and I feel really empowered from this. I was very fortunate that uh, I had become a professional archivist. I had collected from day one. I had written diary accounts. I had newspaper I had formal documents. I had all the court transcripts, of which there are about 10 of them. I, I had it, everything ready to go, yeah. You say the book is about getting justice for Azaria. Yeah. But I kept thinking as I read it, is justice ever possible for you and Lindy? Is either a feeling of justice or a reality of justice possible after so long and so much? Uh, that's another very perceptive question. Justice in an imperfect world... It will only ever be imperfectly presented. 
given to you if you're lucky, and that's if you're alive still to to see it. I I get I guess that I am very fortunate that I was alive to see the day where the truth about how my daughter died was told in a coroner's court, a Northern Territory one at that. So, uh, but I've never had an apology from the Northern Territory government, and that might take a little longer. I think my family, the witnesses, and all the people in Australia, including Christians who supported us, deserve an apology. Michael, can you paint us a picture of your young family and your lives together, perhaps as you set off for that camping holiday to Ayers Rock from Mount Isa, where you were at the time a Seventh-day Adventist pastor? Yes, well, this is all very emotional still, and uh, um, the trip to Ayers Rock was quite um, quite a tough little trip. I was in a, a smallish car, and uh, it was pretty warm, even though it was the middle of winter. Uh, and when we got to the rock, we were entirely overwhelmed, and we saw a sign that said, do not feed the dingoes, but that's about it. No warning at all about the trouble that dingoes were causing tourists. So we paid our $4 each, and then we put our little, quite a humble tent down, uh, never suspecting for one minute that we would have any problems. But what we didn't know was that a week before, uh, a dingo had attacked a kid just uh, almost in the same place where our tent was. And on that night, August 17, 1980, you were the one who heard that now infamous cry. Yeah, the infamous cry. First of all, heard the cry uh, from Azaria. It was it was urgent. It wasn't loud. It was a worrying cry. And I looked at Lindy and I said, you better go and attend to Azaria. And the next thing she saw, um, a dingo coming out of the tent, um, head down, shaking. Didn't see the child in the dingo's mouth, but it was heavy shadow. And... Uh, she said, get out, and then she went into the tent rather quickly and looked around in the rather sort of dull ambient light and saw Regan under blankets but couldn't see Azaria because the bassinet was turned on its side. And it didn't take long for her to scream out, that dingo's got my baby. And that was the horror sound which must have reverberated all around Ayers Rock on that cold, clear night. It was only a matter of seconds. We all tore out of the tent. But it was dark outside of the tent, and I went for a torch, and my big gym torch was battery been flattened that day. Have you ever been to Ayers Rock in the desert surrounding? It just all feels the same, and it feels very, very threatening at night. No light. But it felt all very early in the piece very hopeless. How could this happen? There were prayers said throughout that night as well. Yes, there were, and uh, I uttered one of them, as many others did. I've been rather badly judged on how I behaved in religious sense there. I um, think that uh, any uh, sceptical person who thought uh, there was any guilt attached to our behaviour, uh, they can think what they like. But um, I felt to this day, perfectly justified in how I conducted myself and uh, misread badly, and I think partly because my Christian joy and, secondly, the fact I was Seventh-day Adventist. And so people tried to put the darkest association interpretation that they could on it. Sir Alan Walker, the famed head of the Wesley Mission, said you were victims of religious prejudice and discrimination. Yes, I'd met that man in New Zealand. He was right on. 
but at the time, of course, we couldn't see it coming because I, I never realised how anti people could be against religion and how powerful religious discrimination could become against uh, minority groups like Seventh-day Adventists. The issue was you are widely judged, both you and Lindy, by your calm outward demeanour. Oh, yeah that you didn't act like the public, the media yeah. and the police had expected that you were too serene, as you explained. Yes, exactly. So why why did you appear like that? Because I'm a minister of religion. I am a Christian first, a minister of religion a second, and peace and serenity pervade my soul. Graciousness pervades my soul. It pervaded my soul more back in those days. <laughs> I'm afraid yes. I've lost a bit of yes. it now. I'm hardly surprised. At that. Um, but at the time, uh, as a leader in your own church, as a person who ministers to others, you must hold things together. But not when it happens to yourself. I was a, a seething turmoil inside, but just trying to keep my, a lid on myself. So what was going on behind the scenes? So there's public serenity about that. Yeah. But away from the public? Oh, despair, confusion, terrible dread, and the loss of a child of mine, of ours. And we were now going back to Mount Isa with one of our kids missing and in horrible situation. How were you and Lindy at the time? We couldn't talk about it. The trip back was really somber. I went back as fast as I dare, but as but I couldn't go that fast because my concentration was nowhere. We got back to Mount Isa full of dread. We we were met with very empathetic people, including members of our church. But within days, the uh, the fifth column had started, and uh, people were starting to question. Yes, explain to us what you mean by the fifth column. The fifth column is the other story. The story that doesn't believe the story that is being told. It's a made-up story which tries to threaten the truth and the evidence surrounding it. doesn't like the truth because it's inconvenient. And this is the Northern Territory, this is the police, this is the media. Yes, this is the police telling the media. This, in my view, is somebody behind the police telling the police, this can't be, we have to have another story. And why did they want another story told? At the time, I had no idea. Tourism was seen to become becoming a new means of very significant income for the Northern Territory. The tourism consequences, if it was known a dingo had killed a child, could be quite drastic, particularly for overseas tourists who have families. Are there words that you can use in this interview beyond what you've written in the book to describe what it's like to be at the centre of the media storm <laughs> that you two were for many years? While we were seen as pariahs and as guilty people, it was horrendous. Every time I heard a helicopter, I thought, are they looking for me? Anybody at all who rang me, I thought, is this the media? And it sent horror and a shiver through my spine. They were just trying to paint, further paint a picture of us being the nastiest, most reviled people in Australia. I had no way, apart from my religious faith, of seeing any hope of it being changed. And it was seen as crackpot religion. Exactly. The fact that we were Seventh-day Adventists, there was extreme religious discrimination. Anything that 
adverse could be told about us was told. Any interpretation of anything we had, anything we owned, anything we liked, a, a different spin was put on it to the truth than, than the truth. How did you endure that for so long, Michael? Look, it's a very simple answer. My hope and my life, my gratefulness is all based on the fact that Jesus Christ died for me. He paid the price, and despite my infirmity, despite the fact that I am an imperfect person, he covers me. His life covers me, and I am safe in him, regardless of whatever happens to me on this earth. The second thing was that I knew I was innocent and that I was right and that I had to go on for my family and for all those now who were coming out of the woodwork to support us out of shock and anger. And there are two inquests, then a trial of Lindy two years after Azari disappeared. Yep. The forensic biologist Joy Cool became a very significant part of that story. She, did. she claimed that she'd found 22 samples of... Yep fetal blood in your car. Yep. Tell us how that played out and the end result of all of that. When I first heard it, in my heart I laughed. I thought, you know nothing. Where did you get this from? In the end, the Royal Commission, through a dozen or more experts from around the world, they all in the end declared there was nothing there. No blood whatsoever, no evidence it was three things. Milkshake, remember spilling the milkshake. Copper dust from Mount Isa, we'd been down the mine. And the final and most terribly judged thing was the spray under the dashboard of my car. The plate is now in the Australian National Museum, which they said was the spurt of my daughter's blood, arterial blood, but which was proven in the end, and I say proven, beyond any doubt to be a sound deadener called Dufix 101 that is sprayed in all Tiranas and you can see that on many Tiranas a similar kind of spray and that's what it was. Michael you were asked at the trial did your wife cut Azaria's clothes to kill her yep. and you replied I don't think so. Yep. Why did you answer it in that, that way? That's a very good question and I did it because I have a very literal knowledge of what truth is, legally and theologically. Ultimately, and I was too theological and probably too clinical for my own good, nobody knows anything unless, first of all, they're there, and then they have to believe that their eyesight is telling them the truth. I was not there ever to see my wife do anything to the clothing. So if they then ask me, how do you know she didn't cut the clothing? I then have to say, well, I don't know. So that's why I said, I don't think so. And that's why I answered the way I could, I did, because then Ian Barker couldn't then turn around, well, how do you know? On Open House, we're with Michael Chamberlain. Michael, on October 19, 1982, Lindy is found guilty of murder a couple of years after Rosaria disappeared. Sentenced to life in jail with hard labour, you're found to be an accessory. Can you take us to that moment when the verdict is announced? I was stunned. I had not seen this coming, really, because our own defence had said after the case had been presented and the summing up by the 
trial judge, they said, no jury in its right mind could bring down a guilty verdict. I was so stunned. It was a bit like the night of, of losing Azaria. I could not believe that a dingo had taken her, and yet there she was, she's gone. So here, I could not believe now that I had been shown to be guilty when I thought that it was an undeniably weak and circumstantial case against us once she broke through the forensic rubbish that was being presented. And Lindy waves what you describe as a haunting wave to you. She did. It was horrible because now she had life imprisonment, no parole, with hard labour. And this is the Northern Territory I'm talking about, 5,000 kilometres away. As I said before the break, the prosecution partied that night, and you detail that in the Yeah, book. of course I wasn't there, but I know that there was a fight there, and I do know some of the people involved. Uh, there were quite a few people at that party who didn't agree with the way the prosecution and their um, little private party were operating, and at the end of it... There was quite a lot of surprise about the hatred, the prejudice, the discrimination and the triumphalism that was going through the hearts and minds of some journalists, only a very small number of journalists, because the majority of journalists actually were shocked themselves. It was just symbolic of the way the Northern Territory government was thinking about this case. They had to win because there was so much at stake for them. Michael, what were the visits to Lindy in jail like? Well, it was so open-ended, and it's a bit like, well, how long is this piece of string, really? And there are some times, because of situations with my children, that were very tough for us to discuss, depending on what the focus and thrust was regarding how the children should be cared for. And we did have a couple of um, foster parents who did an excellent job looking after, particularly Carlia. Who was born shortly after Lindy went to jail. Yes, about two weeks and three days, 17th of November 1982. I think it's been difficult for Carlia to accept that she was born in jail. And she's always been very angry about the injustice, first of all, to her mother, and then secondly, the fact that the Northern Territory forced her to be born in such a circumstance. I don't think she'll ever forgive the Northern Territory for that. In jail, Lindy suggests to you actually ending your marriage, and yet she remains confident that God is in control and she will be released. Look, I think it's inevitable that if a person thinks that they're locked up for life, that humanity will try and take over and that faith and determination uh, can be um, sort of subverted or subjugated in this sort of situation. We were going through a fairly tough time during the trial because we didn't know what the outcome was and we were quite angry with each other from time to time about the way, for instance, evidence was being presented. Uh, Lindy, Lindy was unhappy with my way of presenting evidence and said I could have been a lot stronger in defending her. That was uh, a cause for concern. One of my defence lawyers swore at me for it. <laughs> and of course it's become a sort of a something that, that I have to live with I suppose. I don't resile from that. Uh, I did the best I could at the time. I was in a state of shock. I didn't like talking about Azara's blood. It really was very, very shocking for me to try and talk about the blood of my own daughter from a dingo attack and the fact that she was no longer a human being she was lost gone and just trying to 
stay sane, I suppose. Yes. Lindy, Lindy was having problems in jail with other prisoners. Um, she had one prisoner who was lording it over her and making life very difficult. But I know it was dreadful in her trying to <sighs> overcome it. What did you notice about how Lindy had been changed inevitably? Oh, she just became more assertive independence and that that happens when you're alone you know if you've got to run a ship yourself you separate husbands and wives over a period of time a wife i think generally speaking will will say well there's nobody around here to be my carer my protector my number one person i gotta do this myself and this then turns you into somebody who becomes even more independent just to survive and it's a natural cause it's, it's, you can't judge it as being right or wrong. It's just something that happens. Yes. It's probably useful to revisit the events in which Azaria's matinee jacket mm. were finally discovered February 1986. Yeah. By now, Lindy had been in jail four years. The matinee jacket finding was actually quite out of the blue. There was no warning. Uh, it was almost mystical the way it was found. Um, a bloke who should have known better was walking around the top of Ayers Rock and fell down and they looked for this body and they found him, him about three or four days later. He'd been already, a part of him be consumed and chewed away by dingoes. It's a bit macabre, I know, but I say it because I'm angry still about it. The thing was that Lindy had said that there was a matinee jacket on there and that would have caused the pooling of the blood around the neck of Azaria's gross suit. That would also have demonstrated why there was minimal number of hairs on the dingo hairs on the grow suit and it would have definitely demonstrated the alternative view that the forensics said or oh, because there's pooling of blood it shows the throat was cut but the fact is if she'd been attacked around the head and grasped by a dingo around the head it would have been a perfect explanation the other thing was that the cuts on the matinee jacket the teeth cuts corresponded exactly to what was on the jumpsuit underneath. Now, that's a fact not generally known, but the cuts that the dingo teeth made uh, were, were identical. The description of Azaria's matinee jacket was exactly as Lindy had said it was, but which the prosecution uh, satirically laughed at and which the jury said she's lying. And I expect within those few days, those dizzying days, she's released from jail. She's released from jail because Bob Collins, Senator Bob Collins, Northern Territory representative in federal parliament, and also the bearing worker in Germany had now said through a prosecution witness, Dr. Andrew Scott, who had originally thought that uh, Lindy uh, was lying, now said, She's got to be innocent because bearing workers said the blood reagent that was used by Joy Cool to try and prove that it was fetal blood was in fact false. It was a wrong reagent. And if that was the case, the Northern Territory Attorney General's Department, as Solicitor General, and the prosecution were now really, really worried because this would just show once and for all the rubbish that had been perpetrated from the car analysis. And then yet despite all of what you two had been through within a few more years, your marriage unravels. Yes, yes it does. And change of circumstances, assertiveness probably seems to be quite surprising, but I really was the head of the house. And Lindy, uh, when I say head of the house, uh, <laughs> we shared in all the decision-making, but she always left it to me, but this changed after we came out. She was now going to run the show.
as I said, it's a human thing, and it caused all sorts of problems with communication. Can I ask you about the coroner's ruling in June this year, again just on 32 years after Rosario's death? Tell us about the significance, but also the emotion of that moment for you. Well, the significance of it was that the third inquest had said, open finding, you'll never know how Azaria died and we ain't going to try and find out anymore. We're not going to have any further investigation. It's been thoroughly investigated. $20 million or more has been spent, roughly. We're not going to take the time to find anything more out. We don't like the dingo story and it just doesn't suit us politically or forensically, even though the Royal Commission and the Criminal Court of Appeal found otherwise and said that that's the only way you can go. When the fourth inquest was open, it came largely as a result of Chapter 27 and 28 of my book, which I demonstrated that, in fact, dingoes do have a propensity to kill and small children. On the basis that the third inquest had said that dingoes don't have a propensity to kill kids, this changed the whole dynamic. And the Northern Territory Coronial Court said, enough is enough, we have to investigate this. And they did, and they found in our favour, because they now had to accept that dingoes will kill their opportunists, their apex animals, and they will kill children. And there's evidence that they have. Are there words that you can use to describe that moment when the coroner had down that ruling and also apologised to you? <sighs> Overwhelmed. Uh, everybody in that courtroom was overwhelmed with emotion, first of all, because of the just findings she brought down, but secondly, the humane way in which she brought it down and the empathy which she herself showed, clearly affected by something that happened to us 32 years before. And I thought, here is evidence in an Australian court which looks clinically at evidence of humanity, of the fact that humans actually run the judicial system still and can find in their hearts sorrow f for the loss in a public situation. Was there much said between you and Lindy on that day? No. Nothing much has ever been said since our divorce. Nothing much at all. This whole case since our divorce was run independently. I never discussed anything with her. I ran it myself. She ran hers herself. It was just remarkable how it aligned itself and how it occurred. She'd talked to my lawyer. I'd talked to my lawyer. But apart from legally based conversation, there has been no other really form of communication. Many years ago, you left frontline pastoral ministry. You've remarried and your links to the Seventh-day Adventist Church remain. Yes, they do. I'm still on the books as a church member. I don't attend church that regularly. I still have a great interest in church affairs, uh, possibly from a distance. Um, I've written uh, one book called Beyond Desire, which explained the philosophy of my life, which uh, assisted me to come through this whole terrible tragedy. The other book was a socio-cultural analysis of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Their support has been really very significant. Uh, yes, look, generally speaking, I can't fault the Seventh-day Adventist Church people for the way they have rallied around. The Adventist community is a great community to belong to, and I have been involved in a Methodist community too, and they were wonderful also. But I can't fault the way Adventists rally around people they are, by lifestyle, they are very generally caring people. And, of course, to have been so badly dudded by the rubbish that surrounded us uh, was very, very offensive to Adventists generally. And, and they have become even more shy of certain media 
methodology and, and the way they print crap. Could I ask you about two emotions, Michael? Anger and bitterness, two emotions mm. that I think humanly would be entirely understandable for all that you've been through. Have they been or are they part of your experience over these last 32 years and or today? I would hope that the graciousness that has been given to me to live my life through God, through Jesus Christ, would help me never to be bitter. But that does not stop me from being angry and righteously indignant about injustice and about religious discrimination. I think that Jesus would accord with that. Because he said in the New Testament that the three fundamental things which the Jewish rabbis and the Jews at the time had to be critiqued on was the fact that they lacked justice, they lacked mercy, and they lacked having proper faith. These are the three things I think that will help one to get through objectively, apart from emotionally and spiritually, a situation that we face. And I tried to apply those principles and uh, I think they stood by me very well and stopped me from going over the edge from being righteously indignant and angry about injustice into the Dead Sea fruit of bitterness. Bitterness destroys you. Righteous indignation empowers you. How do you say you've been able to make it through all this then? First of all, knowing that I was right and that I was innocent of the taunts, the barbs and the lies that were told. The second thing is that I have been bought with a price, I am not my own, and that I identify now with the one who made me and died for me and who will ultimately save me if I remain faithful. I can do no other. I can only stand on that, and for that I will be eternally grateful. Michael Chamberlain, it's been a great privilege to have you on Open House and Tell Your Story. Thank you so much for sparing us the time. It's been a pleasure for me too. I really appreciate you uh, calling me and uh, all the best to you. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.